morning. You may be seated. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into the marvelous light. That is who we are as believers in the Lord Jesus. Well, what is the authentic Christian life? What does it mean to walk in light, to be called out of darkness into light, to fellowship in the joy of other believers? These are some of the questions that have been answered for us in this series, looking at John's first three letters. We find ourselves this morning in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 27. And he's returning there. I just want to remind us of where we've been so far. John began by talking about the authentic Christian life in terms of being foundational in the gospel, living together in fellowship with the apostles, with the message bringers of the gospel, and by extension, fellowship with them and the Father and the Son and the Spirit. The things that separate us, that bring barriers into this koinonia was the term that he uses, the blessing of fellowship, is sin. John showed us that the default mode of a believer's life is not sinning. And in this very convictional statement, a very convicting statement, he says, if we sin, not when we sin, but if we sin, imagining that if you were to describe the life of a believer, it would be absent sin. But if we sin, he says, like a good pastor reminds us, gracious, in kindness of God, he says, we have an advocate with Christ, our propitiation, the one whose work, his sacrifice diverts God's wrath away from us and to himself. Well, how do we know that we believe that message? John says, well, look at your life. Do you abide in Christ? Like a branch abides in a tree. Branches aren't clinging on, white-knuckling, holding on for dear life in a tree. No, the branch is an extension of the tree and therefore abides in it, not by the works that the, tree, that the branch is doing to keep hold of the tree, but through the nourishment that the branch receives from the tree, the nourishment that the branch receives from the gospel, from the Holy Spirit, from abiding in Christ. And the more that you do that, the more that you abide in Christ, John says, you begin to see the works, the good works that are produced as a result. And so last week, John wants to give us an assurance of faith for those who find themselves walking in the gospel, and no matter what stage of their spiritual life. He, he gives this assurance of faith in three stages. If you remember, little children, young men, and fathers. So children, those youngest in the faith, he says, those who are struggling with their past, with their sin, he reassures them, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake, not for your name's sake, but that he would receive glory in your forgiveness. Your past no longer defines who you are. You have a new definition, and that definition draws from Jesus's name. To the young men or those saints who have followed Jesus for a while, but they're in need of hope and encouragement, John says, you have overcome the evil one, and you're strong, not because you yourself are strong, but because the word of God abides in you. And the same one who dwells in you, the Holy Spirit, is the one who rose Jesus from the dead, having overcome death itself. So have courage, have hope. And to the fathers, the saints who have traveled with Christ longer than most, those who need reminders of the basics, he says, you know him who is from the beginning. Return to the basics of the gospel. John's asking us really at all stages of our life um, to reflect on our salvation. Are we living the authentic Christian life? Are we growing or are we not growing in good works? Not as a means to get God's grace, but as a result of God's grace changing our lives. So this book so far we've seen has, has, has kind of been a little whiplashy, right? He says, if you sin, and you're like, what do you mean I do sin? If you have an advocate with the Father. There is uh, darkness and there is light. There is this kind of isolation, loneliness compared to fellowship. And John ties all these things together, like, like what brings you out of darkness to light? What, what, what allows you to abide in Christ, your advocate? 
And it's the greatest work, which is love, to love like God. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, he says last week. And to be in the light, to walk in the light, as he is in the light, is to have fellowship with one another under the blood of Jesus, his son, who cleanses from sin. So another thing we're noticing, I think, about John's letters as well is uh, how basic in concepts these terms are, like light, fellowship, life, but how deep they go. Well, what do you mean by light? How do I know what is light compared to darkness? What do, I, what do you mean by life? How long? What kind of quality is that life? What John's going to begin to do here is answer some of the questions that we had. And one of the ways he's doing so, specifically with this verse, is he's going to divert our attention away from the love within the church to love outside the church. In other words, he's going to show us what love in the church, love from light, love from the Father, a persistent love ought to look like, compared to what love outside of the church looks like. John wants us to consider our loves in the world, is the specific word he's going to use. Do we love like the world, or do we love like God? Moreover, do we love the things the world loves, or do we love the things that God loves? So read with me, chapter 2, verses 15 through 16. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father isn't in him. For all that is in the world, in other words, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, for all that's in the world is not from the Father, but is from the world. Well, what in the world does he mean? I think that's a question we gotta ask, like, what does John mean by world? Because we can't really understand what he's talking about unless we understand what he means by that term. And at the very basic level, in one sense, it's obvious. It's the universe, it's the cosmos, which is actually where this word comes from, world. It's the created realm. It was created by God, it's our home, it's the rock we live on as we hurtle through space. And in John's gospel, he explains how Jesus stepped into that world. John chapter one, verse nine through 10. He wrote, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus was descending to our planet, to our life, to our realm. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet, the world didn't know him. So in one sense, what John means when he talks about the world is literally the place that we live. But John wants to draw our attention to the fact that there is a flaw with the place that we live. It, we The world doesn't know God. So no wonder John warns us not to love the things in the world, things that know nothing of God. But perhaps even worse than not knowing someone is hating them. And we learn also the way that John uses this word world is captured in a statement of Jesus that introduces to us the fact that the world hates God. John 15, 18, if the world hates you, speaking to his disciples, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So not only are the things in the world ignorant of God, but the world hates God. So how could we love something that hates God? The crazy thing about the gospel is this. Even though God created the world, he sustains the world, the world doesn't know him or the world hates him, God still loves that world anyway because he's gracious and he's kind. And so we hear Jesus' words in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. God loved the thing he created. God loved the thing he sustains. God loves the thing that doesn't know him. How easy it is it to love someone who doesn't know you? God loves the ones who hate him. How difficult is it to love someone who hates you? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Again, John is, I believe, showing us these contrasts in the faith that hold it all together. Here's a question, though, I I had when I was reading the text. If, If God loved the world... Why is John telling us not to? So in John 3.16, Jesus is like, God so loved the world. He loved them this way, sacrificially. Why can't we love the world? And I think the answer is this. 
Because if we're honest, and we're about to learn this, our loves are too weak and disordered and selfish to love the world the way that God loves it. God loves the world too much to let it stay the way it is. And if we were to find our loves in the world, we would be conformed more to it. This is why Paul warns us in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to the power that doesn't know or is hostile to God. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, by the testing, and that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Essentially, what John's about to show us, or what John is showing us in this text, is you, you could call it an anatomy of sin. Why is it that the world doesn't know God, or why is it that the world hates God? The answer comes down to sin. And you can ask, well, what is sin, and why do we sin? Well, John says... It's because we love the world more than we love the world's creator. So for John here, there's another layer of what does it mean world? What does that word mean? He means it's a kind of ethical or moral state in ignorance or an enmity towards God. And he points to three things in specific to explain why the world sins. He says, first of all, there's the desire of your flesh which is wanting your own way and not God's way. Second, there's the desire of the eyes, or wanting for ourselves what God does not want for us. And then third, there's the pride of life, which is centering yourself, placing yourself at the center of the universe and sidelining God. And that you are the most important person ever. All other people around you in some way or form are your servants. And certainly God is there to serve you and not the other way around. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. It is difficult not to notice the parallels between what John's talking about in Genesis chapter 3 with the fall. Think about it. Uh, desire of the eyes, desire of the flesh, the belly, taste, and the pride of life. At the first temptation, the serpent merely got to Eve by questioning God and his word. He said, did God actually say? And because Eve listened to that, it put her in a position to receive two deceptions. Well, one deception and one lie. The first was the lie. He says, hey, I know God told you you would die if you eat that fruit. You're not surely going to die. That was lie number one, right? And that's a, it's a blatant lie because... Uh, Eve is not around today. And Paul says that just as sin came through the, through, into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, we know that the enemy in that moment is a liar. You shall not surely die. Yes, you will. But second, there's a, a perverse twist of theology that, that the enemy uses here by promising Eve that not only wouldn't she die, but that she would become like God, knowing good from evil. And the stunning tragedy is this. She already was like God. In Genesis 1.27, we read that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Eve was already being like God, imaging God to creation. And with that small nudge, Eve's thoughts were led astray. Let's pick up the story there. Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Did you see the three core elements that John is warning us against when it comes to sin? First, the tree was good for food. In other words, it was suitable to satisfy her desires of the flesh, yet against God's way. Second, the tree was also a delight to the eyes. She saw it as desirable to the eyes, wanting for herself what God did not want for her. And then third, a little more subtle, but it's present because of her actions after the fall. The tree was to be desired God's not to be desired, but the tree is to be desired to make one wise. 
So if there's a conflict in desires, always what's going to happen is you're going to default to who is your actual authority in life. In a conflict of desires, when God says no and the world says yes, if you say yes, the authority is not the world, the authority is you because of pride. If you say no and go with God, then God's the authority and you have expressed to him a sacrifice of humility. But that is not what Eve does. Here she gives in to the pride of life. She flippantly dismisses God's authority, centering herself, sidelining him, and then pulls everything and everyone around her into her selfishness in the heavy gravity of sin. Why do we know this? Because what's the first thing she does when she sins? She gives the fruit to Adam. Adam has a choice, and he chooses the same way Eve did. Eve is her own authority. Adam is now his own authority. He's rejecting God as well and joins her in sin. Every sin that we ever commit is modeled after this tragic event, the, the day that death was invited by our pride into creation. And every sin that we ever commit is made up of one of these three elements, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, or the pride of life, which is the core of them. I and mean, think about it, desires of the flesh. This is our unwillingness to tell our bodies no and to tell God yes. But this isn't the authentic Christian life. Peter says uh, in 1 Peter 1, 14, 15, hey, you've got the ability through the power of the Holy Spirit because you're a new creature to resist temptation. So as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And a simple reminder for us here is that you are not your own. You were bought with a price. The body that you have isn't yours. It's God's. And Jesus wants to turn your body into a temple of the Holy Spirit. So just as God gives very specific instructions on what is the temple and how is it supposed to be and what's supposed to go on in the temple, so he gives us very specific instructions on this temple that is our body, allowing the Holy Spirit to indwell us, and we get then to be agents of imaging God to the world again. The desires of the eye is the inability to look away from temptation. And this could be from anything from the obvious, right? So um, keep your eyes off of that thing. Um, that's not yours. You're not allowed to have it, right? That's coveting. Or keep your eyes off that man or that woman. They're not yours. Uh, you're not allowed to have them. But there's more subtle ways that the desires of our eyes uh, lead us astray. Looking down from a position of power to somebody you're intentionally oppressing is sin. Uh, looking away from a burden because you don't want to have anything to do with it even though God's calling you to help the widow or the poor or the orphan or bear the burdens of your brother and sister around you. Looking away, I don't want, if I don't see it, it's not there and I don't have to deal with it. That is sin too because your desires of your eyes are not aligned with what God's desires are for your eyes to see. He wants you to see brokenness in this world so that you can be an agent of renewal with him. And both of these Desires of the flesh, desire of the eyes, they are sourced by the pride of life. If you want to, there's like a fountain source. Here it is, it's pride. Your natural needs come before God's spiritual desires for you. Your eyes to look to or away from what you want, not what God asks you to refrain from seeing or puts before you. You're the center of the world, the world that does not know God, the world that hates God. Anytime you allow pride to dictate, to shape your desires and your actions and your thoughts, you are participating in what John would call the world. You don't know him, you hate him. But here's the good news. That same world is the one that God sent his son to die for because he loves that world. And saints, you know whom, him who was from the beginning. You know this, John says. Paul puts it a different way. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you're in the light of the Lord. Walk as children of light. This is who you are now. These are uh, obvious reasons for us not to love the world that he has given us. But John wants to give us 
yet another reason. He says that in verse 17, the world is passing away. Did you notice that? The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever, does not pass away. The Bible's very clear about the state of the world in the future. It does not continue as is. Uh, it, it has a different trajectory than what you would imagine. And the trajectory is at time, it, it is both like one of, of great trouble and hope. And in the hope trajectory, we read in Revelation 21.5 that he who was seated on the throne said, this is Jesus speaking, behold, I am making all things new. Like, this is my world. I came to save it. I get to do what I want with it. I'm not hitting the hard reset button on it. I'm going to make it new. And so we're given a choice through the gospel. We are either made new with Christ's project of making all things new, or we remain old in the world so that we might be made new to have life with the Father or remain old and pass away with the world. There is no future in the world. There's only a future of the world. And the future of the world is held in the world's creator's hand. And the way that we're made new is by God's love, not by the love of the world or love of things in the world, but of the love of the Father. Notice how John has been weaving these two things together very subtly. When it all boils down to it, in the past three verses, 15, 16, 17, you can summarize it like this. Love of the world comes from the world and passes away, but love of the Father comes from the Father and remains forever. Take your choice. So if you say you believe and you want option B, I know that love comes from the Father and I want to abide in that love forever, then why do we look for love in the world? a world that doesn't know the Father, in fact, a world that hates him. And the reason is this, because we want love on our terms. We want to define love according to our personal tastes. And once we define what love is, we want to delight in that love without fear of guilt or shame. And when that love grows boring to us, we want the ability to dismiss it and cast it aside. When we're hurt, we want to be able to destroy it through revenge. But friends, that kind of love is the love the world loves with, and it's temporary, it's passing away, not only in a future state of things, but also in the present. I mean, think about your life. How many of you have been devastated by a love that you thought was going to be permanent, but passed away somehow? A love that was taken from you, and what I'm talking about is a worldly love, not like the love of a spouse or love of a friend who passed away untimely. I'm talking about the love that you're chasing after him or her or it or that or there. A lover that you placed all your hopes in, they were here today, and then in an instant, they were ghosting you and they're gone. Without explanation, they've abandoned you. A beloved that you found all of your identity in and then they changed and now they're a person you actually hate a lovely thing from which you were drawing all of your purpose and meaning, but then it morphed into something ugly. What you've experienced right there in that moment is a small taste of what's happening cosmically all over the world. That kind of a love is passing away. So to fix your heart on it is to pass away with it. But to fix your heart on the Father is to watch that kind of love pass away and know that you have a stronger, greater love in your Father. The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of the Father abides forever. That's the kind of love that John is advocating we love with. Then, he moves on to a really interesting topic, doesn't he? Did you read ahead in verse 18? Who read ahead this morning? and knew that you had to bring your Left Behind series with you. Children, it's the last hour. And as you heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. 
All right, I bet you didn't know we're going to talk about the end times this morning, did you? Fun fact, this is the first time in the entire Bible the word antichrist shows up. And it's only going to show up three more times. And those three times are going to be in First and Second John. Now, that's not to say there aren't other synonyms for the, capital A, antichrist, son of perdition, deceiver, accuser, etc., etc., but antichrist as a term only appears in John's writings and here the first time. So we're going to want to ask the question, uh, who is the antichrist, right? Um, confession time. John talks about two things in 2 John, love and the antichrist. So we're going to table that for 2 John. So come back for 2 John for that. What we need to do now is not ask who is the antichrist, because that's actually not what, what John's asking. We need to ask along with, with John, what does it mean to be antichrist? What does it mean to be antichrist? Because you notice he said, you've heard the antichrist is coming. I'm saying there's already antichrists here. But how can there be one and multiples of them? Okay, so what does it mean to be antichrist? To be antichrist means less against Christ than it does instead of Christ. In fact, that's what that word in Greek, anti, means, a replacement, in lieu of, substitution, rather than. A rather than or an instead of Christ is against Christ, but that flows out of being a replacement, supposedly. Antichrist is someone who replaces Christ, who demands worship and honor and glory that Christ alone deserves. Someone who deceives and draws away their attention from Christ to themselves. Do you see how pride plays into this? Have you ever replaced Christ and demanded worship and honor and glory of yourself rather than him? Have you ever deceived somebody intentionally or otherwise to draw their attention away from Christ and put it on yourself? Ugh. I want to talk about left behind, please. <laughs> Why is John bringing this up now? It's to warn us against the world in the church. To warn us against the desires of the flesh and eyes and pride, deceiving us into being of the world as a church, not merely in it. John's primary concern here is not with the Antichrist, although he acknowledges the Antichrist is coming. Look again, John's concern is with right now, primarily right now, at this moment, his concern is with the many antichrists, more than one. Okay, well, where do they come from? Let's circle the wagons as a church and look outward for the many antichrists, right? Because surely they're not coming from us as the church, are they? Continue to read verse 19 and 20. They went out from the pits of hell, they went out, the Antichrists went out from us. Who's us? The apostles and their community, the first century church. The Antichrists went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been with us, or they'd been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not all of us. But, if you, but you've been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. We'll continue on with what that means here shortly. But I, I don't want us to pass by the fact that the Antichrists came from within the church. So let me, let me ask this question. On a, on a daily, a more present basis, should we be, what should we be more concerned about? Should we be more concerned about IDing the future end times globalist supervillain that's going to force us to take microchips and so we can buy and sell? Or should we be more concerned with the soothing voice within our own church that whispers lies about Christ? The instead of Christ's that are feeding you something besides his gospel. I believe that's John's concern. There is an antichrist coming. I'm telling you there's antichrists here already. And that's what you need to be more concerned about. The antichrists within. Those whom Jesus warned in Matthew 7, 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. 
The ones that seem right and they're super nice and that makes sense and they seem like they're one of Jesus's, but they're proclaiming another gospel. Or they're, they're, they're proclaiming another Jesus in the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians eleven four, who are possessed by a different spirit, he says, who preach a different gospel in Galatians 1, 6. Paul says that's possible even by an angel. An angel can come and preach to you another gospel. Paul says, let them be anathema, let them be accursed. They are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, Paul says, because Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. So the antichrists, the instead of Christs, who left the church in John's day, did so in three ways. And we, we learn this throughout all of his letters. The first way is that they denied that Jesus is Christ, and so they denied the Father and the Son. The second way they did it was that they did not confess Jesus. And the third way they did it is that they didn't confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, which is Gnosticism, and we're gonna get there. If this sounds overly doctrinal, oh, okay, so if I just check all of these theological boxes, I'll be safe, right? No, because beliefs inform behavior. To have truth, to know righteousness, to know what is true about Jesus informs your behavior, informs what you're looking for in good works. It doesn't automate it. John's been talking to us a lot about love. Love is what makes us desire to want to do good. Knowing doesn't make you desire to want to do good. Some of the most intelligent people in Jesus's day who knew the law in and out were the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, and yet they were still chastised by Jesus. What was missing? It wasn't knowledge, it was their heart. Knowledge still is important because what knowledge and truth does is it shapes and it informs the desires we have to do good. So if you don't believe Jesus was truly man, then you don't truly believe the gospels because they spoke about him as being truly a man who was born, who was raised, who went on pilgrimage, who sat in a boat and went to sleep, who ate, who wept. And if you don't believe the gospels, then you're not gonna confess Jesus as Lord. And if you're not gonna confess Jesus as Lord, you're gonna deny the Lordship of the Father too because you can't have one without the other. So then what's left? The only thing that's left is to make you the center of yourself and to make you the authority, the pride of life. Every way of man is right in his own eyes. The Lord knows the heart. He knows that in the end, why antichrists prefer their own Jesus instead of the true son of God. And John is telling us in a very subtle way, the reason people prefer the instead of Christ, the antichrist, is because of sin. And that is no different today than it was when John's writing. I mean, think about it. What are the instead of Christ's, the different gospels that are being preached to us in our culture? Well, here's one. The Jesus of the gospel says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man may come to the Father except through me. But the other Jesus with the different gospel says, you know, I am a way, maybe even a preferable way, if I can say that. But, you know, there's other ways of the Father. You just gotta find your own way. Jesus in the gospel says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. But other Jesuses with a different gospel says, you know what, man, love is love. Jesus of the gospel says, let the little children come to me. But the other Jesus with a different gospel says, you know what, little children are a burden. Let's prevent them. Or the ends justify the means. And I know that that ministry leader abused her, but let's just look the other way for the sake of his ministry. The Jesus of the gospel says, my kingdom in Revelation is a great multitude from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. But the other Jesus with a different gospel today says, you know what? There are natural boundaries between human beings. And because of past trauma or theological perversion, it's actually okay that we segregate each other. Friends, be very, very, very wary of this, because it's coming now from the left and the right. And if you feel, I've said this before, like if you feel tugged tightly on the left and the right, there are some that would say, it's okay to create spaces where only one race 
can live and be and move and have their being. That is not what heaven looks like. And more insidiously, and, and I never thought I would ever see it in my lifetime, but there are now people that are advocating for a, a position to, to return this country to some kind of uh, Christian-inspired republic that have advocated for what I could only call neo-kinism. Is, is it right that, that, that Christians of, of different races should marry? That's insane. You're crazy if you call yourself a Christian and you're advocating for the separation of races. I don't even know what to do. I don't have a category for it yet. But I'll tell you, it's a different gospel being preached by another Jesus. And that in our culture, left and right are not on a spectrum, they're on a loop. And the further left you go and the further right you go, you're eventually going to kiss the person you think is your enemy. Friends, all of these are denying Christ. They are anti-Christ. They are either outright ignore his authority or diminish his uniqueness or ignore his directives or doubt his power to reconcile people to one another so that we can get to the great multitude of every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages. Do you want to stop the Antichrist? Do you want to stop that kind of thing from happening? Then John says, start looking for the spirit of Antichrist within your own heart. Ask yourself, where have you opted for another Jesus instead of Christ? Who wants to tell you what you want to hear? Who feeds your flesh? Who opens your eyes to sin? Who billows the pride in your heart? Crucify that and look to the resurrected Jesus who's presently seated at the right hand of the Father and will come again to judge the living and the dead and set all this mess right. Okay, if you agree, then how? How should we do that? If there's, instead of Christ and false gospels out there, what should we do? Should we start a heresy hunting club? All right, Kyle, you start the podcast. I'll start the blog. Um, we'll get like our YouTube channel. We're gonna get super so many hits, so many likes and subscribes. Obviously, we're gonna have to grow our beard really, really long. And do what? Join the massive choir of noise? The, the, just the white noise of argument in digital spaces. If God calls you to that, fine. I don't think he called all of you to it. I'll just be frank. <laughs> no, I say we do what John says. And his solution is far more simple. Abide in Jesus to remain in the Father for eternal life by the Spirit whom he has given us. He'll tell us that later in John, in, in 1 John 3. Let's continue. Verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you have all knowledge. Basically what he's saying is you have the tools to push against Antichrist. Not only do you have the tools, but you've been anointed to do so. Again, some of you are like, yes, the Heresy Hunters podcast. Hold on, let him speak. This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, but whoever confesses the Son also has the Father. And now here is John's solution to heresy. Oh, sorry, sorry. I skipped something, didn't I? Let's back up. Verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you have all knowledge. We've been there. I write to you, not because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie is in the truth. Again, you've got the tools in the basics of the gospel to combat Antichrist. Now John's gonna double down on being anti-Antichrist. That is, who is the liar but he who denies Christ? You can't deny the son and keep the father, is his short answer here. And now here's where John's solution to heresy to resisting the other Jesus with a different gospel, to resisting the Antichrist comes. It's so simple. Verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. That's it. That's all you have to do to resist Antichrist, to let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. That's why his short, simple solution works. Because for you to abide what you heard in the beginning means you're abiding in the Son and the Father, all whom the Father gives to the Son. 
will not be snatched out of his hand. And this is the promise that he has made to us, eternal life. You have an anointing, John says, not some kind of mystical, superstitious power, but a special calling by the Holy One that includes, in verse 20, all knowledge. And you are set apart for this purpose. You were called out of darkness into the marvelous light for this purpose. How were you called as a believer out of darkness into the light? You were called by the message of the gospel. The anointing of the Christian's life is the plain and precious message of the gospel. It's the benefit of knowing the gospel, the blessing of faith that you received when you were first captured and transformed, born again by God's gracious love. It's knowing who God is truly and knowing who you are truly in him. It's not about gaining extra knowledge, uh, secret, mystical, esoteric knowledge in the future. It's something we're gonna talk about later with Gnosticism. But because the word of God abides in you, the secret to resisting Antichrist is to retreat to what you already know. I'm not writing you a new commandment, he already told us, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. So resisting Antichrist is clinging to true Christ. And the more you and our congregation clings to Christ, the less inviting of a community this will be for Antichrist. Which is why John says in verse 19, they, Antichrist, went out. They left. They're gone. But they were not of us, for if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us. I think this is less of a, this is definitely a warning to antichrists, but it's not a warning to those who love Jesus. This is actually assurance. If you're abiding in gospel community and the truth of the gospel is purely preached and rightly taught and truly believed, and that's not pushing you away, but it's actually pulling you in, guess what, friend? John says, you're among us. You're continued with us. Just abide in the gospel. Antichrists will eventually leave. They won't like it. If you just wait and watch and don't make judgments in the moment, truth will eventually win out. I wonder if John's not pulling on that famous parable here of Jesus with the wheat and the tares. Do you remember that one? Matthew chapter 13, let's remind ourselves of it. Verse 24, Jesus put another parable before the disciples saying, the kingdom of God may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds or tares. So it's a specific kind of weed that looks identical to wheat, but is not healthy. Sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came to him and said, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He, the master, said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said, oh, okay, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he, the master said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At the harvest time, I will tell you, the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in the bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. This is both a permission and kind of a bit of a command it's not your job to pluck the weeds out of the church because it's not your church. I will build my church, Jesus promised us. Your job is to abide in Christ, to remain in him as the way, to remain in him as the truth, to remain in him as the life. But what do we do about discernment? What do we do about judgment? What do we do about the wolves in sheep clothing? Abide Abide, abide. And God, through his Holy Spirit, will sift out the wheat and the tares. And the tares eventually become so uncomfortable looking for the instead of Christ in a community of people who are worshiping the true Christ that they go out from us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. If they were wheat, they would have stayed in the field. The problem with doing God's job of sorting and separating is that we're not God. And so we're eventually and inevitably going to make mistakes and fail. John has already told us that the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. 
Would you agree that there are different people, even in this congregation, who are at different stages of their spiritual journey or their sanctification? Is there not John the Nicodemus who comes to, I'm sorry, John the Nicodemus, is there not Nicodemus who comes to Jesus under cover of night, not sure what to do with Jesus thing, and then appears to be advocating for him in front of his peers who are hostile to Jesus, and then at one day is pulling up Jesus' dead body and burying him, making him ceremonially unclean and disqualifying him from his religious worship. There are people passing from darkness, moving toward light. Why then are you going to come to them and, and expect them to be at a specific spot where you are in your light by judging them and pushing them away? Like, trust the Holy Spirit. Just abide and have them abide and see what the Holy Spirit does. He's way better at this than we are. Now, some people are faking it. And this is the thing I think we're afraid of. What about the counterfeiters? What about Jesus, Satan being an angel of light? Just wait and be faithful to the gospel and they'll leave. But when they do, pursue them as the unbeliever that they've proved themselves to be. And that doesn't mean haranguing or harassing it means showering them with love and grace and patience, the same that was shown to you. If you are in the light, John says, just stay put, be firm, steadfast, unwavering, because, verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. If you're so concerned about being deceived in the faith, the solution is to abide in the basics. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and it is true, and is no lie, just as it taught you, abide in him. Abide, abide, abide. Abide in what you already know. Abide in the teaching that points you back to the gospels. John's not saying there's no room for teaching, period. He's writing in a context where Gnostic teachers are coming and giving them something new. Jesus was a teacher. The apostles are a teacher. The teaching is a gift of the Holy Spirit. John himself is teaching in this letter. What John is saying is that no one should be coming to you and teaching you something new, something contradictory than the gospel that saved you when you first heard it. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And for this reason, true preaching and teaching reminds and reinvigorates, but never renovates or reduces the message of Jesus. In the end, what John is saying is that you don't need more to be a better Christian. You don't need to know more to protect yourself from heresy or even from sin. What you need is to abide in the basics of the gospel, to remind yourself of it every single day, to preach the gospel to yourself every day, to abide in the gospel, to abide in Jesus and abide in God, and there experience the blessing of true and full and eternal life. The world will pass away, but the love of the Father never does. One of the ways that the church has historically confessed this truth, our utter, complete dependence on Jesus, is by celebrating the Lord's Supper. Jesus himself came down, Jesus himself multiplied bread and pointed to the bread, saying, I am the bread that comes down from heaven that nourishes you. Without me, you starve. But I give abundantly my goodness and grace and love for you. Feast, nourish yourself on me. And in doing so, the Lord's Supper is communicating to us a bit of the fact that we are abiding in him. We need to return to him. We need to partake of his flesh, drink of his blood, to consume the sacrifice he gave us and to remain in the love of the Father. Not by our own power, by the power of the cross, and resurrection. So when you come to the Lord's Supper, you are doing two things. One, you're confessing that you are a sinner and you need Christ and his sacrifice. And two, you are abiding in that sacrifice until he comes again. When Jesus instituted his supper, he broke the bread at Passover with his disciples the night before he was betrayed. And he told them that this was his body broken for them. He took the cup, he blessed it. He said that this was poured out for them, a cup of the new covenant, covenant of grace and love and mercy. Friends, this morning I would like to celebrate the Lord's Supper by doing it in a few stages. Stage one, let's have some quiet contemplation time 
as believers, as saints, to allow the Holy Spirit to examine our hearts when we have allowed the pride of life to direct our desires of the flesh and our desires of the eyes, to give that to Jesus, to see it nailed on the cross. And then when you are ready, after I have prayed, there will be elders at these tables to come and to feast at the dinner, knowing that if you sin, and in the confession you've realized you have, you have an advocate with the Father to take the broken body, to take the shed blood of Christ, knowing that he has made propitiation, expiation for your sins, forgiveness, and restored relationship with God. So let's begin by quiet meditation. I will pray, and then as the Spirit leads you, you may come forward to partake of the elements. Father, we confess to you that we have often given ourselves over to the pride of life, that we have put ourselves at the center of our world where you rightly belong, that we have succumbed to sin through the desires of our flesh and eyes and have fallen short to your glory and so rightly deserve death. Father, we also acknowledge that through faith, we receive life in the righteousness of your Son who died the death we should have died and rose again to gift us with the life we do not deserve. So Father, as we come forward to celebrate your son's sacrifice, we do so recognizing that we are sinners, turned saints by the power of your Holy Spirit through the working of your son. Let us be a people that always abide in him and so abide in you until his return. We love you and it's in your son's name we pray, amen. Amen.